Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Now, today's guest is James Beattie to talk about his book, Gardens at the Frontier, New Methodological Perspectives on Garden History and Design Landscapes. James is an associate professor at the Center for Science and Society at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. James, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's a, it's a pleasure to. It's a morning here, and I'm talking to you from um, a Chinese garden that was transplanted to Dunedin, New Zealand, about 12 years ago. So it was shipped out bit by bit. So I'm now, I'm, I've got an honorary curatorship here. So I'm sitting in the scholar's studio admiring the bamboo nodding in the wind and the sun dappling the windows well you got me beat i'm sitting in a dark <laughs> cold snowy office oh. in rochester new york at the moment oh now before we begin though so that was a great introduction could you tell us a little bit more about yourself the, you know, the curatorship we'd love to hear more as well sure thing I, i'm um, a historian i did my phd at the university of otago in new zealand and i worked in the area of sort of asian studies but also in, to, in areas to do with environmental history, landscape design, as well as histories of, of empire and uh, landscape. So I guess I've got a, a bit of a diverse background. I started in Asian studies at the University of Otago, and then I ended up being professor of history at the University of Waikato, which is further up uh, the country in New Zealand. And now I'm, I'm moving, slowly making my way down south and I'm at Victoria University in a science faculty, of all things. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, very diverse. And so that actually is a unintended segue into kind of where I wanted to start it. As I kind of mentioned to you before we started recording, you know, as a practicing architect, I, 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 a lot of times when you read about landscape architecture, it, it's very much more of a manual on design, location, color, and all that, whereas this was eight very diverse papers and so we can get into them in much more detail, but I was wondering if you could kind of enlighten us a little bit on what brought these eight different, very different subjects together and the fact that this is not much of a design manual. It's actually, and we'll get into it, much deeper than that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a good observation there. And certainly the eight papers are fairly diverse. And I guess that reflected my own background. You know, I'm a historian. I, I'm not trained in architecture but also it reflected where I was at, at that particular time where I was living. This was um, Hamilton in New Zealand in the centre of the, the North Island. And mm-hmm. there there's a really amazing um, series of uh, iconic landscape gardens that had come under the umbrella of something called Hamilton Gardens. And each garden is, if you like, a representative example of a major landscape design from around the world. So, for example... There's a, a late 
um, Imperial Chinese garden. There's a mm. Baroque garden. There's a medieval garden under construction. There's all manner of gardens. So with, with that in mind, I used to teach a, a course on um, landscape <clears throat> design and gardens. And I used to get the students, this was a graduate course, to come into these gardens. We'd, we'd talk about um, samples of them. And in talking to the director of those gardens, I mean, um, Dr. Peter Sergal, we came up with a um, basically a foundation, Garden History Research Foundation, which aimed to sort of further knowledge and research on different garden designs from around the world. So I, every couple of years, I'd hold a series of uh, conferences on different aspects of the gardens. And so the book um, that you've got in front of you, Gardens at, at the Frontier, is basically the result of one of those conferences. So we had um, a diversity of scholars um, coming in to contribute their knowledge and experience and working on different aspects of the cultural history of gardens. So there's a translator and, and writer on Chinese gardens. We've got a land, two practicing landscape architects who at that stage were teaching at university. One of them's still there. She's professor at Lincoln. We also had um, um, a geographer, historical geographer. We also had a, um, an, a couple of environmental historians, which includes myself, and a, an art historian of um, Jap Japanese um, tea gardens. So it was a real um, a diverse collection of people and a diverse collection of papers. But what sort of held them together were, I guess, a couple of things. One, I wanted them to explore the sort of cultural meaning of these spaces, how these spaces were constructed, but also how their construction gave cultural meaning um, to the, the particular gardens themselves and the way in which people interacted with them, how they were, I guess, sites of cultural generation. For example, the uh, chapter by uh, Duncan M. Campbell, who's one of the foremost translators of uh, late Ming, uh, early Qing China. He was looking at an individual who had um, made um, a garden, and the garden in China late, in the late imperial period was as much a physical site as it was a textual site. So he was looking at the representation of this garden, its inspiration for a for essays, for poetry, and for all manner of sort of artistic creations. Mm -hmm. So that's just sort of one example. Um, and the, the other idea was to try and bring together these different methodological perspectives from art history, from history in my case, or from um, landscape architectural historical geography, and to see what bringing them together could reveal about the um, the way in which these different disciplines could work together to try and understand gardens in new ways. Right. And so th thank you very much. And I, I think that's a great way to kind of overarching. And so I, I'm going to steal this term from you. you. You said this before we started recording. The idea that quite a few of these have what you call the hidden history. You know, I joked that quite a few of these have subjects that I would have never thought about the history. But then when reading it, how important that history is on the garden. You know, there's one on the, the history of garden gnomes and then one in particular, you know, I've personally never designed a Zen mm. garden. Yeah. But then after reading about the history of the tea ceremony and its relevance with the garden, I never realized how important that history was without. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll I'll talk about um, the the tea garden, and I mean, this was again, this was written by a friend of mine who's an um, art historian at the University of Canterbury, also in New Zealand. And essentially, what he was trying to do was to look at the particular practices of um, Jap- Japanese tea culture and the way in which um, certain um, ideas and aesthetics were reflected in the development of these tea gardens. And obviously, um, these ideas and these practices were um, introduced into Japan from China. So this was in the sort of 16th and and 17th century. And what's really interesting is that these early um, tea gardens, because of obviously the way in which they were designed, they were designed for um, so that people would slowly move from one um, particular place to another within the garden. And this was obviously a key and central part of of the so-called tea ceremony as it develops in in that time. And most of your listeners and will be familiar with the Japanese uh, the, the tea ceremony in Japan and where it's conducted in a um, in the garden, but also that the kind of planting and the kind of design also would, were there to reinforce that that particular aesthetic. Um, so everything from the limited color palette to the naturalistic placement of rocks and the use of rustic tea implements, that kind of stuff. So I guess, and what was really interesting about this is that none of the gardens from this period survive. So what Richard had to do was to try and use other sources, textual sources, to try um, to try and um, recreate what these places were like. So that's, I guess, just, just one example. The other one um, on cultural history of garden gnomes was actually written by a very eminent ecologist, um, Professor Ian Duggan. Um, and this is something he's always been interested in. He and I had written um, historical papers on the introduction of um, certain you know, organisms, so very much sort of crossover between science and history. And I know I, that he's, he does a He's, he's been interested in garden gnomes, and so I encouraged him to write the scholarly piece, which he did very well. And I guess his main argument, and you know, garden gnomes, when I was a kid growing up in the New, Ze- in New Zealand in the 70s and 80s, they were kind of ubiquitous in your auntie's gardens. There would be at least a, two or three garden gnomes scattered here and there. And he sort of showed that, I mean, it's basically a history that's been ignored essentially because, you know, we focus on, naturally enough, you know, the Henry Moors, the, the major statuary and, and designs and gardens. And so Ian sort of picked away at this history. So, you know, managed to use a variety of, of different sources from images, newspaper records and what have you to show that, in fact, in actual fact, the garden gnome began as a highly elite object um, rather than its sort of um, very vernacular, popular um expression nowadays so we sort of related this history um how it a um moved from sort of elite to popular but b also a number of of um ways in which these gnomes were used you know they were nicked um they were stolen and just that the sort of it's a sort of it's a clever and witty little article um a, a little chapter there i think yeah yeah it was great closing and then to kind of go back to the other 
paper you talked about, mm. which was actually the first one, the you know the mm. Roji, the Tea Garden. Yeah. You know, as I hinted at, you know, one thing again, I, I very much enjoyed the book. It was very shocking that, like I said, at first I'll be honest, as an architect, I, mm. I was expecting a design manual, and that paper had one of my favorite anecdotes of all time, and it's mm. one of the Tea Masters guests. Uh, commented that they really enjoyed his stepping stones. Yeah. Whereas in the Zen culture, you know, anything that's beautiful is considered a distraction. So he went out and he rearranged them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a classic, um, it's a classic paper actually. And um, it's, it, it developed, I guess, in part uh, from Richard's own work and a PhD on the tea ceremony. And he looked at the various aspects right from the, the sort of the style manuals to the um, the implements they used in tea and the way in which space was used. So I guess it sort of it, it flows on from that. And again, what one of the challenges um, w- with reconstructing it is that the evidence isn't directly there in front of you. He needed to use sort of I suppose what what might you might phrase as proxy data, proxy information to try and understand the whole um, the whole process. And the way in which these gardens were were retranslated as they move it from one culture to another, and and I guess too that that's one of the other themes of the book: the way in which ideas, whether they be um, concepts, whether they be designs, whether they be or even physical plants themselves, uh, as they move from one place to another, so they're translated or retranslated, recontextualized in different settings. So I guess each of the papers not only looks at um, the sort of the cultural aspects of gardens and the way that they can instantiate, but the way that they can encourage culture, different cultural aspects, the way they're central to culture, as Richard shows in his um, um, chapter, but also the way in which these ideas are recontextualized and retranslated and reinterpreted in different um, places. Absolutely. And so I was actually kind of where I was going with this next, you know, as, as you've kind of, you've done a great job of kind of tying them all together. Two things I jotted down was the mm. idea of a contact zone and cultural translation. You just, yeah. you pretty much just defined cultural translation for us. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate, you know, you've done a great job. Could you maybe hone in on those two a little bit more for us? So, you know, this idea of contact zone and cultural translation. Sure. I mean, um, both, both are, uh, borrowed concepts, if you like. Um, the first one, the, the sort of contact zone, comes from um, Mary Louise Pratt, who was a social and cultural analyst, if you like. And so she argued that the idea of co- contact zones were these kind of sp- social spaces where cultures would meet and clash and um, be in tension with each other, often, as she wrote, in highly asymmetrical relations of power. In other words, in um, situations in which one group or person had authority or power over others. Um, and, you know, she's quite right in, in highlighting these aspects, but I think these spaces, gardens as spaces, are more than sort of asymmetrical relations of power. They're places where different cultures can meet, they can exchange ideas, they can come to terms perhaps better with each other. I mean, just to segue um, sort of slightly off topic, there's a wonderful book by Fatih Fan. Fan is his last name on uh, Qing British naturalists in Qing China, and he talks about this uh, late 18th century 
the treaty port period and gardens and botanical knowledge was a, a point of intersection, a point of interest between um, these foreigners and also the the sort of elite uh, Chinese merchants. And so there's this really wonderful series of exchanges and gifts that occur. It was also, you know, an area in which, um, you know, people would paint flowers. It was a sort of a common vernacular, if you like. And so it was often, it was sort of with that in mind that I sort of put this book together as well. Um, the second one is, the second concept, I suppose, is comes from um, a, a a scholar called David Porter, who looked really at the interest in all things China and Britain in the 18th century. And he came up with this concept, this process of sort of cultural translation, rather than seeing something from one country or one place going into another as either um, a process of copying, imitation, as a sort of poor substitute for the real thing, or as something imposed from one place to another. He looked more at the actual social relations and the cultural relations or the, the background to how something was and why something was reinterpreted or recontextualized in, in a particular, in a different culture. So it was less a process of imposition or copying and more looking at the process of this um, um, translation this shift from one one design concept to another. And obviously, because he's talking about the interest in China and Britain in the 18th century, he's talking about Chinese gardens as well as you know, other cultural um, um, aspects of, of China itself, such as its porcelain or its designs. So this, I felt, was also really um, a relevant um, framework, if you like, to ask each of the auth authors to think about. Absolutely. And so it's a very interesting point because... I have no doubt that both concepts can be found in any design profession, but at least to mm. me, when I read those, it does seem like the a garden design or landscape seems to be where they have the most freedom, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I you know, in my own personal bias, if I was to design, you know, a building that's clearly from Russian design and put it in a downtown area, it would stand out. Whereas in a garden, you very often see whether it's Japanese, British elements, and it's for some reason it just seems to be a little more freedom there. Yeah, and and I guess, I mean, a, a garden also is is a living thing, and it changes. I mean, I suppose, I mean, it's true also of a of a of a building, you know, with a different light and and what have you, and and through time. But but a garden is a sort of a living place that sort of waxes and wanes over over time and in that process you know you get i mean i didn't go into that in the in the book here but you know there's a sensory experience too of a particular garden you know you might strike it as i have here you know i, I sometimes go in here of, of an evening and you know when it's spring you know just that the and just before the sun goes down, the, the fragrance just hits you. And it's just sort of, if it's a still day, it just lingers in the air. And that's different from today, which is a bracing cold, sort of cold wind after we, we've had a few days of 30 degree heat. So it's a, just a welcome uh, respite from that. Um, yeah. But I think gardens in particular are, are perhaps more open to um, these sensory experiences, but also... Um, to, I guess, bringing different cultures together. Absolutely. And so, you know, 
kind of to segue into one of the papers, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one paper towards the end does mention the fact that a garden's main point is to kind of envelop visitors in the sensei qualities, which you just discussed. Yeah. But what was interesting is the idea that, and I, I believe it was uh, Rebecca Solna had said that, you know, gardens often do have a historical meaning, but they still need to be appreciated by everyone else who doesn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's what I, I like about gardens in that I suppose, I guess the example I'm thinking of is the one I'm in at the moment. This was a, a garden that was um, prefabricated in um, Shanghai and shipped out piece by piece, you know, right from the 200,000 roof tiles to the um, balustrades wow. to the pavilion, everything. And so for me, you know, I, I'm lucky, I'm very fortunate enough to be able to um, have an office here while I work for Victoria University, which is just an incredible um, experience. But also for me, I see certain things in the garden. And I know for my colleague, Duncan M. Campbell, who's a, you know, a world expert on late imperial gardens, he can see all manner of meanings that would be lost to me, verbal puns, you know, um, in, in the way in which, you know, certain um, juxtapositions of features are there. Um, but for your average gardener, people, to, for, for your average, for your visitor who's just walked in off the street, they just love it as well. They can appreciate it for its, mm-hmm. for its beauty. I mean, and that, as you say, is one of the strengths of gardens, that they open up discussion. They, they tend not, they don't close it down. Right. Right. And so, I, I did say at the beginning we wouldn't have we wouldn't be able to get to all of the papers and so far we've actually covered quite a bit of them. Yeah. And so you had mentioned and so one we haven't covered but you've kind of hinted at a few times you have mentioned you know British uh, natives in China. Mm. So you know I was wondering you know not to put you on the spot if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about your specific paper the idea the significance of the willow pattern again another hidden history I would have never thought had such a significant part of design. Sure. I mean I guess. People will be familiar with, most of the listeners will be familiar with the blue and white um, willow pattern wear. So there's usually a sort of a classic scene which depicts um, two lovers fleeing from um, an irate, um, the, the, the irate father of, of the woman. And then they sort of, uh, they flee to an island. And then in the end, they, they're unfortunately killed and they're transmogrified into doves. So this is a sort of familiar pattern, but um, the way I was, I was really interested in this because I used to teach world history. So obviously this is the way I taught it was the interaction between different cultures and often used design concepts and porcelain. Um, But this is a great little story because of course the, the whole willow pattern in a sense begins or blue and white where begins in Ming China. So sort of, um, 1344 to um, uh, 1368 to 1644, that, that period in China, and it begins as export wear to the Muslim countries. And so they get um, the cobalt blue, which they use, they take it from the Middle East, and then they use it to um, produce this export wear, which they, they sell to the Middle East, to Arab countries. And then the Europeans eventually get wind of this, and they start to produce their own, you know, very chunky wear, because of course they haven't, by this stage, they, they still haven't refined the process for develop, for um, making porcelain. And eventually this sort of chinoiserie in the 18th century in Britain takes off um, 
to an extraordinary extent. Not, you know, that Dutch East India Company is importing millions of plates of this of blue and white ware to satisfy the sort of growing consumer demand. But then also you have these sort of export substitutes. And one of them in Britain, you know, in the Midlands, comes up with this fanciful concept, this really lovely story of two star-crossed lovers eventually um, being able to be together after death when they're transmogrified into doves. And this sort of, this design sells like hotcakes. Um, and then, so this was, this was associated with China and all things Chinese, but it was a complete fabrication. But then this gains a sort of cultural hold of the British um, and the British Empire and also in the States too. And they come to associate it closely with China, even though it, it really isn't. And then, so I, I tell a story about this uh, willow pattern garden. Someone has a bright idea of actually realizing this story on a plate in three dimensions in an actual garden. So we're going sort of full circle here. And this particular willow pattern garden is then taken up and used in the sort of Cold War politics of the time by the Republic of China ambassador to Lambas, the People's Republic. And it sort of gets involved in the sort of political politics there. And then eventually I tell the story of this, this garden design and it's continually been reconfigured such that now you see this Orientalist design feature on... Um, plates but instead of say turtle doves you have two New Zealand birds and instead of the sort of the features of um, um, willow pattern willow you have New Zealand birds and uh, New Zealand um, trees and so they tell a story about colonialism so it's it's if you like a pattern that's been constantly reconfigured both spatially but also culturally uh, great thank you very much for and so like I said we could go into great depth about all of them but in order to allow you to get back to your day yeah so one thing i always like to ask as we're closing you know yeah. since the books come out what have you uh, you know what have you been working on what other projects are down the pipeline well i've got a, a big um edited book with um, a couple of friends of mine in the states ryan tucker jones at university of oregon and um ted malolo at amherst college and we've just finishing off a, a 15 chapter book edited book for hawaii university press on migrant ecologies, which is basically environmental history of the Pacific. And then I've got another a docu um, a documentary film on Chinese art with my, my good friend Richard Bullen, who contributes a, a chapter in this book. And also I've got another uh, couple of books on, um, one is on a Chinese garden, a Chinese camp or settlement, which I'm writing with an archaeologist. Another one I'm working with on with a um, an ecologist is on the um, a regional history, like a, a long ten thousand year history of a region, and finally, I'm still working on a, a big history of, I guess, Chinese plants and gardens, as well as the migration of Chinese in the Pacific and what they were doing with with gardens and market gardening and what have you. So I've got more than enough to keep myself um, occupied in these pandemic times, Brian. <laughs> Very interesting. And perhaps yeah. we'll uh, we'll be talking again someday if you'd like to about some of those other ones. Oh, that'll be wonderful. And look, thank you so much for um, having me on the program. And I, and I really appreciate the show. It's been, I don't know for other people, but during the pandemic, podcasts have been my lifeline. 
Absolutely. So like I said, when I commute, I've told this to others, when I commute to my teaching job, podcasts and audiobooks. So yeah, <laughs> well, I want to, I want to thank you for being on as well. Uh, for everyone listening, the book is Gardens at the Frontier, New Methodological Perspectives on Garden History and Design Landscapes. I got it that time. Brilliant. So thank you and have a great day. No, you too, Brian. Thanks very much.